You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's September 11th. Nineteen years ago today, the 9-11 terror attacks changed life as we knew it and changed U.S. foreign policy, launching America into the global war on terror. In a new paper, Rand researchers assess this moment, and many others over the last 75 years, to understand the course of U.S. global influence. The takeaway, over the last two decades, the U.S. has experienced a sharp decline in international achievement and global influence and a generation of Americans have come of age in an era in which foreign policy setbacks have been more frequent than successes. There are multiple factors that have combined to cause this downturn. There have been domestic divisions within the U.S. and diminished public support for international engagement. Some U.S. policies have relied too much on force, had unrealistic objectives, or lacked strategic coherence. And there have been several external factors, the rise of China, for example, that have limited the reach of American influence. But overall, the authors say that the decline in American influence seems best explained by the, quote, classic cycle of hubris followed by nemesis. They describe a sequence of success, overconfidence, overstretch, failure, and retreat, that has contributed to diminished U.S. global influence over the last 20 years. They also argue that, most recently, a slow and poorly managed response to COVID-19 has further diminished U.S. international standing. So, how can America return to preeminence? First, more could be done to persuade skeptics that working for a more peaceful and prosperous world is in America's national interest as well as the personal interest of those skeptics themselves. Second, sustained public support for constructive international engagement will require cooperation across party lines. Without such cooperation, successive administrations will simply reverse the policies and expunge the achievements of their predecessors. And if that happens, that will ensure the U.S. remains as it has become. Quote, reliably unreliable on the world stage. Schools across the country are scrambling to resume instruction amid COVID-19 risks. According to RAND experts, it's important to remember that these risks will likely be present for the entire year, not just a few months. This unfortunate reality should inform how schools plan and invest. Here are a few of the biggest considerations. According to the CDC, in-person or hybrid school requires two changes, a sanitation regimen that includes masks and reducing the number of people sharing a classroom. This means schools will need more physical space, and they may need to update existing infrastructure and install new equipment, such as sanitation and air handling systems, in order to meet safety standards. Effective education during the pandemic, which for many schools includes some amount of online instruction, also depends on technological infrastructure, universal internet access, and devices. Before COVID-19, it's estimated that nearly 16 million school children lacked access to the internet, a device, or both. 
If millions of students stay shut out of online instruction, that will likely widen the achievement gap that disadvantages rural, black, and Hispanic students the most. Finally, school districts also need reliable, real-time data on what strategies are working to keep teachers and students healthy, and under what circumstances. Conflicting, politicized, and incomplete evidence on the level of risk when schools open under varying scenarios is one reason that reopening schools has become so contentious. In all of these areas, school districts could use more guidance and more funding from the federal government. Our experts emphasize that short-term planning and ad hoc infrastructure isn't likely to get schools through this academic year. And making concrete, large-scale investments in schools and in the equipment they need now will not be wasted when the pandemic has finally passed. Even as the U.S. unemployment rate has dropped from its peak of nearly 15%, many workers are still being left behind. This is especially true for those in the leisure and hospitality sector, which includes arts, entertainment, recreation, and food services. Economist Catherine Edwards broke down some numbers on the RAND blog this week. Back in February, there were 16.8 million jobs in leisure and hospitality. By April, there were only 8.5 million. And among all of the people working in the industry in March, 47% were not working at all in April. Importantly, these are some of the lowest-paying jobs out there. They're also still being affected by government social distancing regulations, and it's unlikely that all the jobs in this industry will come back before the pandemic ends. Edwards also examined how these workers have transitioned from being temporarily laid off to being permanently laid off, and vice versa. The results are not encouraging. Not only is the overall share of permanent layoffs among these workers increasing, but their flows from temporary layoffs to permanent layoffs are also on the rise. Edwards notes that it's difficult to know exactly what these transitions mean for the economy, but this does suggest that the recession, which has already proven to be steep, may not be short. During his eight years as Japan's prime minister, Shinzo Abe has pushed through a series of significant security reforms for Japan, increased Tokyo's engagement on the world stage, and acted as a fervent supporter of the U.S.-Japan alliance. Now, news of Abe's looming resignation, which he announced last month citing health reasons, could leave Japan less secure and the U.S.-Japan alliance unstable. That's according to Zach Cooper of the American Enterprise Institute and Rand's Jeffrey Hornung. The timing of Abe's exit is concerning, they say. With China's rise and increasingly aggressive behavior, this alliance is more important than ever to regional stability. And Japan is reeling from COVID-19 and an economy in recession, which means that the next leader in Tokyo will almost certainly have to devote more attention to domestic politics and less to national security issues and the U.S.-Japan alliance. Ultimately, Japan's new prime minister, and possibly a new U.S. president come 2021, could end up in a defensive struggle to protect the alliance from critics inside their own countries. After leaking classified court records about National Security Agency phone surveillance in 2013, 
Edward Snowden was charged with theft and the unauthorized disclosure of an estimated 1.7 million classified documents. Last month, President Trump said he was considering a pardon for Snowden. Brand experts weighed in on the issue last week. They pointed out that reasonable people can debate how to run the country's national security apparatus, what privacy protections are appropriate, and whether to restrict certain intelligence collection activities. They can also debate whether the intelligence community's whistleblowing apparatus is sufficient to protect the employees and contractors to which it applies. But, if the intelligence community is to exist and operate effectively as part of a national security system, then it must rely on personnel who serve as custodians of America's most sensitive secrets, which serve to protect both U.S. interests and lives. The risk in pardoning Snowden, then, is that it could lead to similar vigilante behavior. Quote, Encouraging such actions by making them devoid of accountability in one of the most famous and egregious cases of such a leak could create a snowball effect, with other individuals holding highly sensitive information at their disposal thinking that they, too, can be the sole arbiters of U.S. national security and the public good. And that could cause more grave harm to the United States. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.